Okay, I'm with Father Brian Milady, a Dominican who's done a lot of work here at the network and uh, gives retreats around the country. Father Brian, I was wondering if you could tell us about uh, your own story and entering the Dominicans, where you're from, and some of the dates of your ordination and things. I uh, am often asked where I come from, and that's not an easy question to answer because my father was an Air Force officer, and so I lived all over the United States. I do claim Southern California as my home because that's where we eventually settled, and I grew up some of that time when I was a a boy there. My entrance into the religious life was rather odd because even though I was sort of interested in it, I went to public school in the early 60s, and that was unusual for people who entered religious life because I didn't really know very many priests or religious except the sisters that taught me in grammar school. I went to college at the University of California at Santa Barbara, and there I met the Franciscans from the western province of the Friars Minor that had a large seminary at the old mission at that time. And I was very impressed with them, and they were very open, and they used to come out and lead discussion groups with the students. And that sort of drew me to think more about becoming a priest and especially a religious. But I didn't particularly want to join their order, first of all, because they were slowly beginning to become very liberal with the liberalism in the 60s. In fact, almost all the people I knew left eventually, and there were a lot of them. There were like 30 or 40 people in the seminary there at the time. Also, I wanted a more intellectual community, but I wanted something like the Franciscans. And I didn't know much about the Dominicans except that at the time – The Dominicans were sort of in the spotlight, first of all, because there was a famous song, Dominica, Nica, Nica, that rivaled Elvis, and it was done by a Dominican sister, and Dominica was actually St. Dominic. It was the life of St. Dominic in French. So that was very, very popular. And a friend of mine had a brochure, a vocation brochure from the Dominicans. So I thought, well, gee, this is interesting. So I wrote a letter to the vocation director, and I got this glowing letter back, practically saying, oh, we want you, we're storming heaven that you'll enter, etc." So I thought, gee, most of the time I tried to join the Jesuits at one time, I was totally discouraged because I didn't go to a Catholic school. And I thought, gee, these people want me. So it was also the time of the Vietnam War, and I was in ROTC, and you had to make a commitment in your second year or, you know, you might probably be drafted. So uh, I decided that if I was going to enter the religious life and the priesthood, I would make my decision when that had to be made. So the day we, they asked us, I just said, oh, well, I'm going to go do what I think God wants me to do. That was in 1966. My parents were very upset. My father hung up the phone when I told him. So it was an interesting time. I was sent to the novitiate in Somerset, Ohio, very far away from California, and I made my first vows in 1967. I then went to the seminary in Berkeley, I always call it Berserkley, from 1967 to 1973, and in those days we were ordained in my province because it had been a missionary province a year before we finished theology. We finished theology as what they called a a simplex priest, which meant we could say mass, but we weren't allowed to hear confessions yet. 
So I was ordained in 1972. And pretty much that's how I came to the whole idea. It's very unusual, my vocation story, because I don't really have one, except that I just had to make my decision at a certain point. And I think in those days, people were more open to making commitments when they were 18 or 19 years old. So I just decided this was it. And I don't won't say it's been easy. It certainly hasn't. Um, I was watching an interview they did with Mother Dolores Hart, the nun who kissed Elvis. And the interviewer said, well, did you ever feel like leaving? And Mother Dolores says, well, only about every five minutes. <laughs> and he laughed. And she, she looked at him and she said, no, no, I'm serious. It was very hard, very hard. But I, I stayed. So because I also hit the the big crunch of the renewal where nobody knew what the future was going to be. And it was a new and exciting trip every year. This was, I think, the hardest part. But anyway, so that's my vocation story. What, I think a lot of us wonder, so not being in that time, you have this great tradition of intellectualism from the 40s and the 50s, a lot of great thinkers. How did it crumble, collapse so quickly? I'll, I'll hold the mic for you. Well, first of all, I think that people did that because that was what you were supposed to do. And it's some, not everybody, of course. Some were very sincere in it. But as soon as it became popular or clear that you should be something else, they just rejected the whole thing. I know people who spouted St. Thomas where you couldn't question and two years later thought that the whole thing was stupid. It was amazing, the, the transition. Also, a lot of people didn't understand what they were learning. And I can give you an example from a Dawson priest I once knew, a Monsignor. I gave a lecture series in his parish on Christ. And he was an older guy. He'd gone to Catholic U back in the 40s. And he said, you know, I've learned more in listening to you in a weekend than I learned in my entire theology formation. And I said, well, how can that be? You went to Catholic U when Bishop Sheen was teaching there. You went to Catholic U when they had all these wonderful professors. He said, Father, my classes were all in Latin given by Europeans who could barely speak English and had a Latin accent that we, none of us understood. We didn't understand what we were studying. And we memorized the theses to pass, but that was it. I mean, and, and uh, he says, I, I can't say that my theology training was very good at all. I got through it, but it wasn't something where I was deeply involved in what I was learning. Now, of course, that isn't true of everybody. I mean, there were people who benefited greatly from the old system, too. But I think there were enough people that were like that where as soon as they had some freedom, they just jettisoned the whole system. Also, I studied and taught in Europe for six years in Rome, and I was amazed at the cynicism about religion in Europe, and including some of our own priests. What I discovered was, in my experience, that the priests that were trained before World War II were real priests. They were in it for the right reasons. They maybe had had scarred, some of them had been through the war, they may have had scarred youth, but they were in it for the right reasons. Many, not all again, but many of the priests trained after the war were like Bing Crosby and going my way, where you have this kind of superficial uh, 
thing where I'm a priest, yes, but I'm really something else. Mm -hmm. And the religious part didn't enter that much into the whole deal. It was more community organizing or the social justice or something like that. And as soon as they had the ability, again, to jettison the more supernatural part of it, it was seemed natural to do that. Do you think in the culture itself, because it seemed like there was this tendency, even outside of the church, uh, to reject tradition, conformity, do you think that was set up by World War II in some way? I don't know. I was told by a priest once that because all many of the fathers were gone, a lot of the people that grew up in that time grew up very permissively. As you know, a lot of the mothers, too, were working in factories and things like that. So family life was pretty difficult, I think. And I just have the idea that many of the, not everybody again, some were quite committed, but so many, too many, I think, uh, were very superficial in their ideas. And yes, I do believe, I know that in my era anyway, and of course there's hardly anybody left from my era, that if it was traditional, it was bad. It was like, it was just by definition bad. And it came as news when people started to re-examine the tradition. They couldn't figure out what was going on. I know the John Paul II Catholics that began entering seminaries, let's say, in the late ni- middle of the late 90s, all the people that were my year, they, they couldn't believe it. They figured they were on the cutting edge. You mean these people want to go back to some of the things we gave up? They're reevaluating them, maybe sometimes in the, in the wrong spirit. But still, they actually think there's something to all this stuff we gave up. Well, yeah, I mean, you can't totally deny your identity. Mm-hmm. You stand on the shoulders of giants. Maybe some things needed to be changed. I would have to testify that for my entering and my novitiate, I think there were some things that were ridiculous that really needed to be changed. But the trouble is nobody made distinctions about this, and they threw out the baby with the bathwater. What about, too, I, I was wondering about the influence of technology. You know, we've had this incredible growth in technology. So newer is better in the technological world. And do you think that translated into theological thinking? It it could, but that particular opinion isn't even on a broader scale. The 19th century was loaded with this philosophy that there were these absolutely fixed laws in nature, and the fixed laws were always leading to something better. Evolution's basically based on this. The change is always for the higher and better. Instead of change can often lead you to things that are worse, but nobody accepted that. So because things were current, because it was progress, because it was different than the old, everybody assumed it had to be better. Uh, They had this experimentation that went on in the church and liturgy and other things in the late 60s. Well, that's nice, but nobody ever admitted that there are experiences that blow up in your face until you did the wrong thing right. and that you have to reevaluate what, what you did. They, they refused to do that. Yeah. So the, I know many people in my age group or a little older who are, even though the whole evidence of their senses is against the idea that some of the things they did in the 60s were right, they're just absolutely convinced that they're on the cutting edge still even though they're gray-haired hippies, um, and they won't reevaluate what they did. So, or, or that maybe their experiments were bad, or they, they weren't, weren't well... They, you know, if the, if the test tube blows up, you know you did the wrong thing, you should maybe try something different. But they refused to do that. Their life stopped in 1968, and they don't have any desire to examine what they did. 
How old were you in 1968? In 1968, I was, let's see, 22 years old. And describe that year. You were in Berkeley, the heart of 68 in this country. What, what was it like? Well, of course, we were rather sheltered because we lived down the street. We lived just over the border in Oakland. But everything was a new and exciting trip. I mean, you were supposed to be reinventing the wheel every year. In the formation, we were a new and exciting trip, uh, depending on who the new formation superior was. I remember that when Nixon bombed Cambodia, which had been a little after that, uh, all the theological seminaries up at Berkeley wanted to close and go out and work for peace in the streets. Out of the streets! These classes we're taking are useless. And we had a big student meeting, and I remember I got up uh, and I said, you know, well, we're not a striking school because uh, it's fine, we should work for peace, but we think our theological formation is helping us to do that in the right way. And I quoted St. Augustine and all this. Was, well, they didn't agree with me, but they were respectful and they listened. But I remember we took one class at Berkeley, at UC Santa Berkeley, and when we went up to go to the class, there was the strike going on, and there were all these hundreds of students snaking through the campus saying, hell, well, we, we, no, we won't go, you know, to Vietnam and all that stuff. And, of course, when I was there, we actually watched the smoke from people's park being bombed on the roof of our House of Studies. And they had that big crystal knocked where all the students rampaged in Berkeley and broke all the windows on the street in, uh, I guess it was Shafter Avenue or something, of all the stores and things. It was really rare. It was very, very different. And it was very violent in the culture, right? You had assassinations. Was it the Tet Offensive you were talking about with Nixon's bomb? No, the Tet Offensive was earlier. This is when he really decided to bomb the North, right, which was about 71, I think. And, um, yeah, uh, the Kennedy, uh, Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King were assassinated. Humani Vitae was issued in 68. They had the big Democratic riots in 68 at the convention. They had the student riots in Paris in 68. Uh, it was called Soissons-Wheat in Europe, for, in French, you know, 68. The, the world's never been the same since then. And that's when the nuns all threw out their habits in 68. Um, how, do you, how would you just characterize that thinking? What, if you can, what is that thinking? <laughs> oh, well, I, I understand it because I embraced it for a while. Um, all you have to do is accept the relativity of truth, that there is no objective truth, which is, of course, what the 20th century was pretty much about, beginning as its, in its inception with Einstein's theory of relativity, which to his horror he saw applied across the board in ethics mm-hmm. instead of just physics, and also Freud's idea that there was no personal responsibility or the creation of these forces mm-hmm. over which you had no control, basically, so that completely undercut the Judeo-Christian ethic. Mm-hmm. And uh, its first great manifestation came in the First World War, where there were no restraints given to conflict and warfare at all by Christian nations. Mm-hmm. But it, it eventually, the Catholic Church sort of kept it out for a long, long time. But in the 60s with the council, and it, <laughs> it wasn't the council that did this, but there were enough theologians at the council that wanted this done that they portrayed it this way. They basically said that all our scholastic philosophy, all our perennial philosophy, that taught there were objective truths metaphysically have been done away with by Vatican II, and now we basically became our own life project that we created. 
I remember once I was asked to role play a modernist in a class, and these people knew I wasn't a modernist, but I'd say they'd say, well, what about the Council of Nicaea? It teaches this. I said, well, that was fine for 325, but we don't live in 325 now. So what they did for their culture, we have to do for our culture, and we have to change all the terms to fit what we're expressing in our culture. And they were furious with me by the time it was over because all you do is have to say, well, uh, we've come of age now. We're not children anymore. So we've come of age. We should be able to create the future for ourselves. And, of course, Chardin fit in into this. He was a big popular thinker then where everything, again, was evolving toward the omega point and all this stuff. And um, basically that was what people were given. They were fed a bunch of drivel. And remember, you call it people stopped studying philosophy in Catholic seminaries around this time. Any philosophy was okay until the church began to try to reimpose, like the perennial philosophy studies. So it was a time of great, great ferment, and uh, we're living with the fruits of it today. Do you think uh, Vatican II, sometimes I think, in some ways, you know, the timing of it. It seemed, uh, because it was before 1968 it started, and uh, that it really did anticipate, but I guess it was reacting to deeply rooted ideas that had already been in the universities and everything to some degree with evolutionary theory. And Well, I'll give you my take on Vatican II and its timing. The first Vatican Council in 1870 had 50 topics they wanted to discuss. They included the liturgy, the laity, the bishops, everything. Because of the political situation in Europe, namely that the Italian state invaded Rome in 1870, there was a war going on, they only discussed two topics, which was the ones they thought were the most important, which was the nature of revelation, which again Vatican II took up because it was such an important topic, and the infallibility of the Pope. But, you know, they never formally closed Vatican I as a council legally. They just dissolved. Well, when the papal states were taken over by the Italian state, the popes were prisoners in the Vatican. They were at war with the Italian state. It wasn't the time to continue the council. World War I rolled around. It wasn't the time to continue. The Great Depression rolled around. It wasn't the time to continue the council. World War II rolled around. It wasn't the time to continue what they had wanted to discuss. So for almost a hundred years, this lay sort of in abeyance. Mm-hmm. So when John the Twenty Third took over, he basically said, "Well, you know, we really need we needed to discuss these things eighty years ago. We, they still need to be discussed." So he he called this council, and to everybody's surprise, really. But but in the same token, since the first Vatican Council hasn't been closed, the people even in eighteen seventy knew that there were these were topics that were important for the church's continuance. So, uh, in fact, uh, there was a big dispute over whether to call Vatican II Vatican I-B or Vatican II. Mm-hmm. So the day before Vatican II started, John XXIII formally closed Vatican I <laughs> so they could have a new start. Now, it's true that the first document, which they thought was the most, one of the documents, the one on the church, was filled with such scholastic language that the bishops rejected it because they wanted to present the church's teaching to a, they didn't want an in-house expression for theologians of what we believe, because I think they figured everybody already thought that. After all, everybody had been trained in scholastic philosophy in one way or another. So they didn't feel they needed to reaffirm that. 
So they wanted a statement that would be clearer to the outside world, even non-Catholics, and, and place the church in a more uh, open position. And they also wanted um, something that could be explained to people without all the baggage which comes, and it's not a bad baggage, but it's still an academic baggage from all the scholastic language. So that's why they, they didn't want the thing to be expressed in that way. But of course, there were people who from the 50s on, theologians, who really didn't like the scholastic things. They were into that, what they, well, you know, remember the two great terms for Vatican II were aggiornamento, which is updating, and then ressourcement, which is was a return to the sources. A lot of thinkers, and perhaps rightly so, were reacting against scholastic manuals of theology that were dull and dry. And, you know, again, people would teach them this and they'd read them the text in Latin and they'd just sit there and listen to this. So, for example, people like Father de Lubach and Ratzinger and Rahner, they began to read the fathers in the original languages while the professor was droning on up in front with the manuals. They began to read these original sources of the fathers. So they were excited by the whole thing, and they wanted to put that in, which was a good idea. And they also they wanted the Catholics to rediscover scripture studies, which had been pretty much a Protestant place. And they wanted to put that in too, which was an excellent idea. I mean, everybody knew the scholastic stuff already. So why, why reaffirm it all, right. I think, was what most people's mentality was. Or there were some that greatly questioned scholastic philosophy. So anyway, that's what... Uh, was uh, some of that spirit was put into the documents, but the people at Vatican II, including John the Twenty Third, they in no sense wanted the traditional philosophy of the Church to be denied. I think uh, an enlightening story is one I heard about the use of Latin in the liturgy when they were first broaching the subject of allowing some of the vernacular languages in the liturgy. Some poor Sicilian bishop stood up and with tears in his eyes pleaded with them not to do this because it would mean completely doing away with Latin and the liturgy. And the source I read, who was a cardinal that was present at the initial sessions, said his speech was greeted with uproarious laughter in the hall. You know, like, do away with Latin, are you out of your mind? That's never going to happen. And of course, not seven or ten years later, you couldn't sing the Salva Regina Latin and everybody walk out of the church. You know, they couldn't, they didn't believe it. They didn't understand, they didn't believe what happened as a result. So something weird went on in the whole thing where as soon as people got a little freedom about it, they didn't have any brains about how to do it. I remember Archbishop McGuckin came back from Vatican II with the documents and some of the theologians had preceded him back to the United States by six months and told everybody what they should have said. When he came back with the text, nobody was interested in reading it because they already knew Vatican II had done away with all that stuff. Tell us about the, uh, like the gift of uh, what, what the new Mass can take from the extraordinary form. That I know we always, often speak of the sense of the sacred and everything. Describe that change that we've seen in the renewal of the liturgy, that what we need to learn from the past. Well, I think the renewal of the liturgy was very good. I think it needed to happen because so many places, for one thing, there's a missionary church now in the broadest sense of the word. So you have, you know, the Orientals and the Africans and all this business. 
And though the Latin liturgy did provide a continuity everywhere in the world, still, you know, to impose the Latin liturgy in some contexts would it would be better to allow freedom a bit than that. I think everybody recognized that. So they didn't want to do away with the riches, for example, of Gregorian chant or what the original liturgy had been, but they did want to make it more accessible to the laity, and especially the laity that might not be educated in Latin countries and things like that. Because sometimes, not always, this is I think people are too exaggerated about this. I mean, you've got to remember that the, the mass of the Council of Trent sustained the largest missionary effort in the history of the church and many, many saints for 400 years. So it couldn't have been all that bad a deal, right? But um, they wanted to put more scripture into it, which was a very good idea, the scripture readings. You can debate, about, I guess, about whether they did it the right way, but that's what they wanted to do. And also, um, they wanted to allow for the use of the vernacular and the liturgy. Now, the trouble is, that there was a time, they said, that should be used for experimentation. Well, that word became like a magic word for doing whatever you wanted. So people began to have these weird expressions of mass. Uh, like they, they, in the late 60s, they had this book where all these people wrote their own Eucharistic prayers. You had people using Coke and potato chips. Uh, nobody wearing vestments. You had baseball masses, clown masses, circus masses. Mm-hmm. I mean, all this absolute nonsense that was going on. And it was like, it like introduced chaos. So what, the thing you can learn from the old liturgy is the psychology of ritual, which is the ritual is it's like a game. You know, you play hopscotch, you don't change the rules because these are time-honored and they let you know what you're doing. And they, and they also help you to transcend your everyday life. What ritual tries to do is express what can't be expressed in words, in gestures. And we're going beyond what we're able to verbalize and conceptualize when it comes to our relationship with God. So the ritual gestures help us to do that. And the reason they are all uniform, like why does the priest wear special clothes? because he's not doing an everyday ordinary action there. Why does he have ritualized greetings? Like instead of, hi, good morning, how are you? It's so nice to see you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Because he's not greeting people just as himself there. You know, he's greeting them as Christ. There's something going on which transcends the ordinary everyday time. If I were greeting you in myself as a the person whose name is on my driver's license, it'd be fine for me to say good morning, how are you? But at the Mass, I'm not doing that. I'm exercising a different role. I'm, I'm a minister of him. And the ritualized gestures and language emphasize that. Now, when you have a lot too much experimentation, too many options, and too many this and too many that, the whole idea of this transcendence becomes somewhat compromised. And especially if you let people play around with it too much, like it's their little personal toy. So from the old liturgy, we can learn that the ritual gestures are an attempt to uh, have us, by conforming to a certain way of thinking and a certain way of acting, to represent what's inexpressible and something that we can uh, relate to and understand. You also talk about the starkness and the silence of the Old Mass. Tell us about that. 
Well, as you know, in the Old Mass, the priest, for example, from the offertory on, he hardly says anything that's audible. And, of course, he's not facing the people, so his personality doesn't have to come out at all and really shouldn't come out because, as I say, you're not representing yourself. You're representing Christ, the high priest there. Unfortunately, when you face the people, many of us find it difficult because you, you don't... We had one priest that said, I always stand and lovingly gaze into their eyes. Well, I mean, first of all, how many people look at you during the thing? Secondly, uh, it's, it's like an assault in a way, you could say. Um, then if you look down, people think you don't like them. It's, it's, it, often what I do is I try to fix my attention to something just above their heads. So I look accessible, but I'm not actually lovingly gazing into their eyes trying to fix them with this mesmerizing glance, you know, because it's not me. Everything's supposed to be focused on him and the, and the host, you know, what's happening in the ritual. In the old liturgy, there was a lot of silence, and it was very stark. I mean, it's true some people said their rosaries, and they had devotions they did and things like that. But you could cut the silence almost with a knife. And today there's so much stuff that goes on. You have to get this in and this in and this collection and this, these announcements and this. and that. It just goes on and on and on. But it's just busyness. Cardinal Ratzinger talked about the John Paul, uh, Paul Benedict talked about that, where you, you shouldn't have so much busyness about the whole thing. That since it is a ritual action, the action itself should carry on, and there should be times when just the starkness and silence occurs. It's like always having to be singing stuff. You don't always have to be singing stuff. I mean, silence is. Like at the offertory, for instance, it's nice to have an offertory hymn, but you don't always have to have one. Communion, it's nice to have a communion hymn. My general experience is most people don't sing communion hymns. Uh, they, don't, they, they more or less prefer some silence. So perhaps there could be a short communion hymn with silent prayer after. But the idea of adoration and silence is something that the new liturgy could learn from the old. And it's almost... Uh like a more masculine spirituality, isn't it? The starkness and the, I don't know what you use the word, severity, but uh, it seems like today it's so, um, sometimes can get so tactical, tactile and expressive and emotional. And Well, I don't know about masculine, but the touchy-feely stuff has, has definitely should be limited greatly. And, you know, there was one book, the fellow was, he was being satirical and some of his satire was misplaced. But he used to talk about what he called the microphone competition because the lector has a microphone, the song leader has a microphone, the priest has a microphone, the deacon has a microphone. Whose microphone is loudest and who will actually win? The whole microphone thing. I, I am so sick of going to parishes where there's this screechy soprano that sings this communion hymn that just grates on my nerves. I can't even think while this sound is coming out and and it's not that she's necessarily a bad singer but I mean it's sometimes that's the problem too but I mean it, it's just you know you'd like to be able to concentrate and focus your attention sometimes and in, instead the whole idea of the busyness how everything has to be sung even if it's sung badly um, it can be in, interrupting of that it's where it should encourage it because if you do sing the liturgy it, it is very unifying. I mean, the reason some of the parts by nature should be sung is because you unify the word with the emotions with the body. 
And so you have a complete unity of all the powers of man altogether because music appeals to the emotions very much, as you know. And so that's why it's recommended. But still, if it's going to be grating and destructive, it's probably better, at least in certain contexts, to limit it or, or not to do it. You give a lot of missions. You travel all over the country. What do you think uh, should be some of the preaching themes today? What do people need to hear? Where do they need to be helped? And maybe, and also the value of preaching itself. Preaching, of course, is a duty on the part of the priest. It's primarily the bishop's duty that he shares with the priest. Uh, My order was basically founded for doctrinal preaching. It was founded almost by accident. I'm I'm astonished sometimes that people don't know anything about the foundation of the Dominican order. I was giving a retreat to some Carmelite nuns recently, and I had them have a question box, and they said, well, tell us about your order. I said, you don't know anything about the Dominicans? Not really. Uh, St. Dominic was the son of a noble knight in Castile in Spain. And he came from a rather holy family because his mother and his brother are both blessings. Jane of Aza and Manes, who also became a Dominican. He, at a young age, showed a desire to always be with God. And he became a canon of St. Augustine in Osma in Spain, which are the relatives of the Norbertine canons today. That's why we follow the rule of St. Augustine, and we also say the Norbertines are our cousins. He was so highly esteemed in his community, he was elected one of the superiors, And he was chosen to go on a diplomatic mission with his bishop to Denmark to arrange a marriage with, I think, the princess of Denmark and the king of Castile. While they were on this mission, they passed through southern France. And there was a raging heresy there at the time called the Albigensian heresy that taught that all matter was evil and only spirit was good. So they rejected the sacraments. They rejected the church. They even rejected sexuality. They practiced abortion, all these things. The story goes that one night St. Dominic engaged in an inn, the innkeeper who was an Albigensian, in a debate about this. And they stayed up all night, and he succeeded in converting him afterwards. Well, after they went on the diplomatic mission, when they came back, on the way back, Bishop Diego was so struck by the difficulties of this heresy that he wanted to preach to convert the Albigensians. The church had tried to do this already, but they sent the Cistercians from Citeaux that showed up with their retinues of servants, their silver plate. And, of course, the Albigenses, because they thought matter was evil, their holy men were very, very poor. So the Albigenses had no respect for these rich monks that showed up. So St. Dominic and, and St. Bishop Diego basically decided that what they would do was to attract the Albigensians, that they would live a life of holy poverty, begging. They'd go two by two like the early apostles, and they'd live like the early apostles. They succeeded, and then some people joined them who were already priests. There were maybe ten of them. They succeeded in converting only a very small amount of people, all of them women. And they were all thrown out by their families, so in those days, you'd starve to death if you weren't a nun or you weren't married or you weren't in your family, if you're a woman. So St. Dominic joined these people together in a convent, and he adapted the Norbertine constitutions to them, and they were the first Dominicans. The, the nuns never let us forget. They were the cloistered nuns. They were the first Dominicans. 
Well, Bishop Diego eventually went back to Spain and died. And the preaching mission went on, sort of, but it was kind of rudderless. The Pope thought this was such a good idea the contrary to the Fourth Lateran Council, which had met about 10 years before this, five or 10 years before this, and forbidden the founding of new religious orders, that he basically decided that this should be an order. And on his own uh, initiative, he founded the Dominican order, really, the Pope at the time. So St. Dominic and these people that were left, there were maybe 10 of them, they had this religious rule they were supposed to be like canons in the the priory, but they didn't just live the religious life for themselves alone. Like the Franciscans, they went out to the people to preach. Um, and because preaching involved education, because many priests didn't preach at this time, only bishops did, St. Dominic wanted to be sure that books and education were very much a part of the preacher's training. The Albigensian mission was a failure. They succeeded in committing, converting very few people. So what to do with this group now? Well, he prayed and had inspiration, and when he, instead of consolidating his forces, he sent them two by two like the apostles to all the university towns in Europe to try to influence the town culture, which is the same thing the Franciscans were doing. The Benedictines had influenced the agrarian culture, but when the towns began to grow up again, there was very little in religious life to offer them in the towns and also in the university centers to try to you know, be a part of the higher education of the Middle Ages. And that's how the St. Thomas and Company and all that came about. But it was the zeal for the preaching mission that was supposed to be the primary care. Well, anyway, preaching is the place where you basically apply the gospel, the preaching and the confessional, Preaching in general, the confessional in particular, where you apply the gospel to people's lives. Unfortunately, again, not everybody's talented as a preacher. Also, many people are so busy they don't prepare much when it comes to their sermons. So they kind of are off the cuff. What I've discovered is that there's very little doctrinal preaching that goes on. Many of the faithful have never heard of sanctifying grace, for example. And it's odd because grace is the central concept of the Gospels. So if priests preach about, they preach about social justice or they preach about our political situation or something like this, in either a positive or a negative sense in this country. And there's nothing wrong with all that. But doctrinal preaching really is lacking. And, and, and doctrinal preaching, I would include the formation of morals, that's really, really important. And when I give parish missions, I discover that many of the laity don't, have never heard talks on what spiritual life is about. Or, and they're trying to run an adult Catholicism and with, a, uh, at best, uh, a fifth-grade education in the faith. So well, Dominic's success against the Albigensians came when he went to the universities? Or what about the rosary? We always hear about the rosary and his success. Well, the rosary was used as a preaching aid, but the Albigensian mission, the only way they were converted was they had a crusade and massacred most of them, Simon de Montfort. Yeah. Um, they still exist in southern France. In fact, the Vinci Code is all about the Albigensians, strangely enough. But um, they're not very numerous, but they still, still exist in southern France. 
the rosary was more for the preaching mission in general, which then became doctrinal to all of Europe. They used to preach and preaching crosses, you know, in the public, uh, not at mass necessarily, where they gather crowds and uh, remember they had a problem in the Reformation because they added the indulgence thing to it, the preaching of the indulgences, and then they presented it in a way that was, well, perhaps they, for good intentions, they thought it was popular, but it became really weird in the way people interpreted it, and it was wrong. But uh, no, the, the rosary, we always looked on as the divine office for the laity, and the rosary became into greater use as an attempt to introduce a prayer life into people when you were giving them the sermons, basically. But the Albigensians weren't really converted by the preaching. Yeah. How do you prepare today when you preach? I usually use a scripture commentary and, or a book that I, a couple books that I have that are very, very helpful. And then since I'm a theologian, I can see other, once I have a theme, then I have uh, tried to take out of the gospel something that I think is a unifying theme because often, especially in the Sunday readings, there is a unifying theme underneath it, but it's sometimes hard to find. And then based on that topic, then I try to present the doctrine and then I always try to have a practical application to morals. What are some of the books you like to use? Uh, Divine Intimacy is one of them, which has some excellent Sunday meditations on the readings in a page or two. The uh, Catholic Commentary on Holy Scripture from the 50s is one that I think is very good. It was edited by um, Bernard Orchard. It was published by Nelson. It's still somewhat available, though. Someone told me you can get it online now, which I'd love to have if I can do it. The uh, if it, There's a church document. The Catechism, of course, is very helpful in this regard, too. If there's a Summa text about it, I often will try to read the Summa text or a text in St. Thomas about it and all that kind of thing. Uh, you mentioned uh, that you were caught up in some of the 60s liberalism. What brought you out of that? Oh, yes. I actually wrote a reflection on my own little confessions. Uh, it was in the Homilic and Pastor Review about 15 years ago. I sent this to Father Ken Baker, who was the Jesuit, who was the editor at the time, and he said, we don't normally publish this personal uh, account, but your experience speaks volumes to a certain generation. So I was uh, spouting all this junk I was learning by reading all these crazy books. This before you were a priest. Uh, no, this is, yeah, before I was a priest. It was right after I was a novice. In the novitiate, I began to be turned off by the fact that I couldn't think, but they weren't allowed, we weren't supposed to think about things. So I used to read these crazy books like The Secular City by Harvey Cox and all this business. And I was spouting all this jargon. I remember the provincial came for visitation from the province I was in. And he said, my, my name in religion was Thomas Beckett. And he says, uh, oh, well, Brother Thomas Beckett certainly has the modern jargon. <laughs> well, so when I went to the West and started my formation in theology, which was philosophy studies first. You know, I really wanted to study St. Thomas, but classic philosophy is very hard for someone who hasn't ever tried it. I teach this class on the Internet in scholastic philosophy, and the people are always writing these anguished emails because they don't understand the whole thing the second week. I said, you know, it's not easy. You have to be patient with the whole. You've got to think about it for a long time. 
Well, anyway, um, I also reacted against the idea that we had to goose step to all this business. So I was, whatever the latest trend was, I was right there. Well, of course, everybody hated me because I was being very critical of things and stuff. And this was in Ohio. No, no, this was in California. Right. So when the summer rolled around, which was 68, I was very, very unhappy. And one of the things that I had did done was we had had like two rosaries in common every day in the novitiate, you know. I had kind of given up saying the rosary. And the big liberalism in those days was you took your habit rosary off, right? So I'd done that. And I was studying at a university in the summer in Oregon. And when Humani Vitae was issued, of course, everybody reacted. It was his knee jerk where the, many people just totally rejected it. Well, I never dissented from Humani Vitae. I didn't quite understand what it was all about, and I wasn't willing to make a judgment. Because even though I was very liberal, I wasn't willing to say the Pope was nuts, right? So, um, and then I was so unhappy that uh, I thought maybe I need more Marian devotion in my life, so I put the rosary back on. About, but why did you put the rosary? I mean, there was other a nun that intervened. Well, that was late, yeah. Was late. She, about a month or two later, I went to a meeting, and this little old Irish nun, Sister Fidelis, walked up to me, and she said, Oh, brother, you're still wearing your habit rosary. How nice. I said, Yes, sister. She said, Now, do you say it? <laughs> and I said, Well, I have to admit, I don't say it much. Oh, brother, she says, Pray the rosary. It got me through 50 years in the convent. If it get me through that, it get you through anything. <laughs> So I started to say the rosary. And around the same time, I took a class from an Episcopalian up at Berkeley in St. Augustine, Dr. Massey Shepherd, who was actually a rather famous high church Anglican. His favorite saint was Catherine of Siena. This class consisted of reading the City of God from cover to cover. And my experience reading the City of God was like Ian Stein's reading The Life of St. Teresa. I finished reading this book, I closed it up, and I said, you know, this book is the truth, and all this junk I've been spouting, it's just a bunch of nonsense, you know. So, see, St. Augustine led me back into being more appreciative of my Thomistic formation. Because also, I, I discovered in philosophy class that... Around the time you finished the course, that's when you sort of understood what it was all about. So I had taken philosophical physics my first year, which was the theory of motion and change. And I walked, when I was at this place in Oregon, this university, I was walking along one day outside and I said, gee, the sun rising and the change, how could something change be the same at the same time? Substance, accident, cause, effect, all this junk. I thought, that's what that was all about. Gee, I wish I... I wish I could go through and take the whole class over again. Now I know what we were really studying, you know. But um, it was it was uh, very enlightening. So that led me back to being beginning to react against all these people who were basically, in my opinion, doing away with the faith. And then, of course, we passed like ships in the night. And there were things that I found very troubling about. Like I remember the year I was professed, which was '67. We had a camp in Oregon where we used to go for vacation, and there was a German Dominican who came there to say mass for us. And he decided everybody should go to communion in the hand. Now, of course, this is long before communion in the hand was approved. 
And so there's one of our one of the people that was at the camp went up to receive communion, and he said, "I receive communion on the tongue." This is all in public, and he says, "Take it." I receive communion on the tongue. Take it. I receive communion on the tongue. And they had a fight, you know, during mass, you know, publicly. And I found, gee, this is very troubling. I mean, these people are supposed to be so liberal, and they force you to do what they want you to do. There's no open-mindedness behind this at all. So the more I experienced the tyranny of the people who were trying to change things, the more I maybe react against them and sort of rediscover my roots. Well, that is a certain irony that it was Augustine and not Thomas. That, how would you characterize the differences between like the Augustinian theologians and the Thomistic? Well, of course, the Augustinian theologian is knowledge, which I think does have some place in St. Thomas, but they had a tendency to undervalue the experience of the senses, which is what Aristotle was doing. They're more Platonic because Augustine knew Plato, but he didn't know Aristotle. Aristotle wasn't really recovered for the West until the Crusades. And I think if he he, he did correct Plato in, in many ways to fit a Christian context. But Augustine, Augustine also was a master of rhetoric, and a lot of his uh, expressions are very beautiful and very well made, whereas St. Thomas is more, more academic. St. Augustine wasn't really academic. He was reacting against whatever the particular thing at the time was, and he's not really systematic either. Whereas in St. Thomas, you have a systematic presentation of the truth. It's quite academic. So you have to be able to appreciate that. And also, it's very much contrary to the way we tend to be raised in empirical science. So I remember when we were all fresh out of the secular university, we went to our first class in physics and philosophy, and the professor was Spanish, and he had this very thick Spanish accent, and he goes, let me pose this question to you. Is the wood ashes or not? And we go, yes, no, no, he go like this, you know, because he was talking about substantial change. Well, substance, we'd have no idea. You know, all we thought was chemicals. That's all we thought in terms of, no, every time we get, we used to call him the Tony No-No. He's, it was Father Antonio Moreno. Uh, because every time we answer the question, we no, like this. <laughs> so we say, well, why does he bother to ask us? We're always wrong. <laughs> and you, you, in this philosophy class, there were only three students, so there was no escape, you know. Um, but yeah, he, he was a, he was a very interesting character too. He lost an eye fighting for Franco in the Civil War. Mm. He was a very very good philosophy teacher. Yeah. Some, some people have described the differences, like Augustine you know, speaks to the heart, Thomas to the head. Um, do you find that true? Uh, I've heard people say that. I probably have said it myself when I first started to study the difference between the two, but I don't think that's true. Um, as you know, there are passages of St. Augustine, for example, his meditations on time at the end of the Confessions that are very hard to understand. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are passages in St. Thomas that are almost lyrical in the way they express the truth, even though they use rather technical language. Mm-hmm. And as you know, St. Thomas, it's, it's very dangerous to limit St. Thomas to only the Summa because he has scripture commentaries. Uh, there's all kinds of his works uh, that nobody ever reads because he had a prodigious output for someone who only lived to be 50 years old. I mean, it's, 
They had no typewriters and no printing presses or anything. It's amazing. What do you think uh, the gift has been with having a John Paul II who was more Thomistic and a Benedict who was more Augustinian? Well, I have always appreciated John Paul II's encyclicals for their uh, breadth of examination. Some people think they're very hard to understand and maybe too deep, but I think that they're worthy of study. What I appreciate in Pope Benedict is more his liturgical reflections, which because he's so influenced by, St. Augustine's theology, which is more vivid, obviously, because St. Augustine was a preacher and rhetorician, um, have been, I think, very helpful to the church. Also, Pope Benedict is an excellent, very well able to explain, and clearly, the problems of the contemporary world with regard to philosophy and how it affects theology. At least that's my perception. I think John Paul II's encyclicals are more systematic. So as someone who uh, appreciates that, those I relate more. But I think Pope Benedict's beautiful. He's more homiletic. And I love his works on the liturgy and his reflections on the liturgical year and all those things. And I think actually he may think those are his most important works too because I know someone who's translating his complete works from German into English to be published, and the Pope specifically asked that the translator begin with his liturgical works. Who is that translator? Father Ken Baker, the former editor of the Homilic and Pastor Review. I know with the election of Francis, Pope Francis, that uh, a lot has been spoken about you know, this idea of service and taking action. I think it kind of raises the question of the relationship of, of faith, hope, and love. But can you talk about that, the connection between faith and works, faith and charity? Faith is a very peculiar kind of knowledge. There is such a thing as human faith, which is why where you go into a class and you don't understand the subject, so you have to trust that the teacher is telling you the truth. In human faith, because if you're studying mathematics, let's say, it's something you could understand if you were intelligent enough in theory, uh, eventually you don't need to trust the teacher anymore if you understand it yourself. So faith has both the intellect and the will involved in it. That's not the same as the way science is. In science, when you really have science, you don't have to trust anybody because you understand it yourself. When it comes to divine faith, we'll never understand God. I mean, he's, he's uh, after all, infinite. So we have to trust, and especially Christ, who's the prime revealer and prime revelation, that what we're being taught is true. Now, since both the intellect and the will are involved, the will has to be implement what's believed by ethical practice also. So faith without works is dead. The demons believe, but they tremble because since the will is involved, the will has to be as perfect in adhering to God as the intellect does. And Luther, remember, quoted the famous text about justification of man is faith. Well, remember, Luther added a loan to it. That was his problem. Yes, faith is absolutely necessary for justification because you can't love what you don't know. But it's the beginning of our justification. And it's not limited to faith. Faith, to be live, 
has to be completed by the works of charity. Now, I don't think there's any self-respecting Protestant would say the works aren't important, but they they have this problem with merit and you know the fact that our works can cause faith. Well, we don't believe our works cause faith. We believe the result of faith, and we don't merit faith. What we merit is heaven, as a result of faith. So the the formation of the will is as important as the formation of the intellect when it comes to acts of faith, that we basically prove what we believe by not only loving God, of course, which is essential, but also by loving his image the way God loves his image. Also, the whole uh, reaction against works doesn't take into account that there are certain works that aren't ours, they're Christ's, and that's the, that's the sacraments. So they're intimately involved in receiving faith and in nourishing faith. But again, we don't merit the grace of the sacraments. Christ did that. We just participate in his merit. So there are works that are necessary to receive faith, the sacramental order, works that are necessary to live faith, the moral order, but we don't merit either one of those. Christ merits in the first case, and in our case we cooperate with what Christ has given us. Uh, but if the will is informed properly, it's by by charity. Then faith is we have we we have faith still. Remember, if you commit mortal sin, you still have the 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 fact of faith, but it's not really a virtue in you, because um, since the will is involved, it has to be perfected by the will. Can you talk a little bit more about the, the sacraments as the works of Christ again and its effect in us? Remember, the traditional doctrine of the sacraments in scholastic theology uses this causality business. And you have the fact that in the sacramental action, the primary moving cause is God. That's the efficient cause. That's what gives the strength to the, 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 the whatever is the pouring of the water to give grace. But God works through tools, secondary causes, so the primary tool, if you want, of the Godhead is Jesus' human nature, his body. His body is absolutely necessary for us receiving the Spirit because he's the second person of the Trinity, and from heaven he sends the Spirit to us. Christ himself, while he was on earth, established certain rituals to be what's called a separated efficient cause instrumental cause, a separate tool, so that when the pouring of the water occurs in baptism, by Christ's institution, it's like his touch of his body touching the forehead of the child or whatever. Now, Christ's touch, remember, had the ability to heal. And even the healing power from the Godhead, from his person as God that comes out, even extends from his touch to the things that touch him. Because remember, the woman touched the tassel of his cloak and got healed. So that's like the sacramental order, see. So by Jesus' institution, not because these things in themselves have any value, but because of his institution, they are the connection to his body, which is the connection to his person, which is the divine person of the word. So um, Christ himself has willed that we will experience connection to his body, 
which is the only means by which we can be saved, receive the Spirit's gift now through these rituals that he himself instituted and gave power to. So I know in John 6, it's interesting, you know, he gives the great bread of life discourses and teachings, and he starts with faith. He starts with, you know, he says faith is the, you know, he who believes has eternal life, and then he goes to teach about the sacraments. So the sacraments complete, perfect that faith, and can you talk about that chapter a little bit? Of course, the bread of life discourse is its own, I mean, very deep and very long. And remember, the Eucharist isn't just the touch of Christ, it is Christ. Uh, that's why it's the sacrament of sacraments, whole and, whole and entire. All the other sacraments act through the person of the minister, but not the Eucharist, it's the person of Christ, the high priest. But the uh, baptism gives us faith. That's because it gives us grace. And that's what the Protestants find difficult to accept, even if they have practiced baptism. It's, they find it difficult to accept that physical works could give us grace. So if they practice infant baptism, they also have... Lutheran confirmation is basically looked on as an adult acceptance of your baptism because they're not sure what happens at infant baptism. Mm -hmm. We don't believe that. We believe that infant baptism, the baby's a holy creature. Now, in order for that to be nourished in us and sustained in us, for faith to be sustained... Once we reach the age of reason, we need a, a food, just like people need food to sustain their physical life. And so the constant presence of Christ to us, constantly being involved in his sacrifice, constantly having him within us, is what the bread of life is about because it's nourishing faith, hope, and charity in us to be conformed to him. Now, in the case of an adult baptism, maybe it's clear to see, but he does, that person approaches baptism with some faith that pre-exists baptism, though, right? How does the church talk about that? Well, it's like, yes and no. I mean, it's like a preamble to faith. It's an inchoation of faith. But until the person actually is baptized as an adult, uh, they don't have grace yet. But you can see that it's approximate preparation for grace, which God doesn't need, as is the case of an infant. If an infant can't be prepared that way, the sacrament can still give him the, the, the grace. Um, I'll give you an example of this, which was from my own life. When I was a young priest, I was locking up the church door one night. And so I always tell the young priests not to poo-poo menial tasks like locking the church. And there was a woman riding by on a bicycle. And she stopped and she said, are you a Catholic priest? I said, yes. Do you give instructions in the Catholic religion in this church? I said, yes. Can anybody come to them? And this is before RCIA when priests still did this. And I said, yes, I have, I have a convert class. Oh, well, she says, you know, I've never been baptized. I'm not in any religion. My husband's Catholic, but when he's married outside the church. He was divorced. And I've always been very intrigued by the Catholic religion. I'd like to know more about it. So I said, fine. So we, she came to the class, and like the third class, we had a class on grace. And the particular catechism I was using at the time had a quotation from St. Augustine that St. Thomas uses. That's actually the new catechism, where it says, one soul in the state of grace is worth all the heavens and earth combined together. At the end of this class, we were all sitting around this table, and this woman goes, 
Father, I want grace. <laughs> like this. Now, see, that's, that's the proximate preparation. Now, this poor thing, she had to have her husband's first marriage annulled, which was not easy. It had to go to Rome, as I recall. So it took like two years. And she dutifully went to Mass. She dutifully studied her religion and all that. And eventually the annulment came through when her husband returned to the church. I don't know whatever happened to them because I was transferred before it finally came to fruition. But, I mean, you know, she was on her way then. And, of course, if she died, she would have had baptism by desire because she couldn't be baptized by water if she died in that state. But... um, you know, it, it, a part of the de- baptism by desire includes that if it's possible, that it will be completed by baptism by water. Right. Um, one last question about this. Uh, how do you explain the, the concept of merit? I know you mentioned meriting heaven. We also say meriting grace, right? And how do you describe that to people? I was reading the Lutheran-Roman Catholic dialogue about this, and I discovered that the Lutherans don't have a problem with the idea of reward. They have a problem with the idea of merit. They don't like the word. Because it suggests that we do this ourselves. Uh, this is the accord in the late 90s? Yeah. What do you think of that? Well, I don't know what to think about it exactly, but I, I found this part intriguing. Yeah. That they said, well, as long as you, well, if you mean reward, yeah, we can kind of get on board with that, but we don't like merit. Mm. Now, the term merit, I believe, comes from the dispute with St. Augustine with Pelagianism. So it has a very rarefied theological context, right? The idea is that we cannot give ourselves grace. Only God can do that. By cooperating with the actual grace we receive in our souls, we can help to prepare ourselves for this. But there's no way we can give ourselves union with the infinite eternal God. It's not, we're finite, God's not. But once we receive grace... We're supposed to allow grace to affect what we do, which is the famous parable of talents. The guy that buries the money, everybody wonders why he's so severely punished because he gave the, the king back exactly what he'd gotten. Well, he didn't lose anything. Yeah, but what Christ is talking about there is money. He's talking about grace. And when you receive this wonderful gift, God expects you to do something with it. And when you don't, you hold the giver in contempt. So that's why the reaction is so great. Well, anyway, um, if our freedom is formed by this, then we have to do actions as a result of the grace we've received from our freedom. Now, that's called cooperating grace. And it's called cooperating because in operating grace, God works in us to justify us. But in cooperating grace, God works with us to go to heaven. So it's, it's like going to heaven is a reward that each person receives a little differently depending on how much they've allowed their wills to be formed and acted according to the grace they've received. So we don't merit grace, but we merit heaven. Now there's a sense in which you can say we merit an increase of grace because that has more of an immediacy to us the more we love God. But the initial grace, nobody can merit that's something that is justification. We don't merit just. We don't believe we merit justification. That's something given to us by God. Once that's there, though, then heaven is a little different. That's why in my house there are many mansions, according to how much a person's loved on earth, and that's the principle of merit. Now that means that if I give an act of cold water to someone because I'm in the state of grace and I love God, 
there was actually two people that are acting there, the Holy Spirit and me. The Holy Spirit's part is like huge, but my part's still there. <laughs> it may be tiny, but it's still there. <laughs> so at the end of life, when we go to heaven, God rewards himself by strict equality, but he rewards us by proportionate equality. In other words, we've done, when we, when all we're supposed to do, we say we're just useless service, we've only done our duty, but we've still done our part, what God expects of us. So uh, that's why you'll notice they changed one of the prefaces, uh, which had a tendency to suggest, I think it was the martyr's preface, uh, in rewarding their merit, you're rewarding your own gifts. I think they changed that in the new translation. And then, of course, we can't merit final perseverance, right? No, nobody can merit final perseverance. You merit heaven. That's the final reward. You have to pray for final perseverance every day. Everybody does. You can never, because once a person realizes that grace introduces you into this supernatural eternal world, nobody can say it's their own to do with as they please. They constantly depend on God. Uh, because it's an infinite condition. Who of us can say that we can cause that in us? None of us can say that. So um, St. Thomas always says what cannot be merited can always be prayed for. And uh, in other words, God, even the people that don't have grace, like the people in the Old Testament, God doesn't leave them bereft. They can always pray to receive it. And um, So there are saints in the Old Testament, but they're in a little, they're, they do have sanctifying grace, but they still have the condition of original sin, too, so that's a little different than us. But um, anyway, um, the, the classic prayer for this is, oh, God, come to my assistance, Lord, make haste to help me. Or the fact that every Christian, no matter how holy they are, has to say every day, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. <laughs> Pray for us now in the hour of our death. Yeah, amen. amen. Exactly. <laughs> what historically, why... Can you talk about the origins of this divide between Protestants and Catholics? And and today it's so vehemently held to in preaching, of Protestant preaching, you, you hear about faith alone. And uh, why is it so important for the Protestants? Well, the Reformation, of course, was bound up with lots and lots of different problems, including the fact that the nation states were being founded and the rulers wanted to be freed from having to pay tithes to Rome and all that business. That's a motivation. A good bit of the English Reformation, as you know, was caught up with Henry VIII justifying his divorce practices and a land grab. They wanted The church owned a lot of land, and they wanted the money to use for the government. They dissolved all the monasteries and the shrines, and they sold all the stuff to pay for the government. But there was, of course, the church was very corrupt at the time, especially in Rome and the Curia, and everybody knew that, but how to reform it, no one was exactly clear. So a part of it was very bad theology. A part of it was very bad philosophy. Uh, ignorance was and, and political relationships and their inability to actually get people's act together to actually do it was something that um, I think caused the whole split. Luther's basic problem, I believe, was that he was a nominalist in philosophy, which meant he didn't think there were real essences of things, and 
he didn't like reason at all. He thought anything that wasn't grace was the devil. He didn't like logic either. And so his basic thrust was faith for him was emotional confidence and trust. It wasn't a set of doctrines exactly. And when he came to the conviction that he felt that God loved him, which is fine. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. He didn't want to connect it then to any of the works because he thought he'd been using the sacraments as, as like crutches. And probably he was. He was abusing the sacraments. Well, you know, he used to confess for an hour or two every day. Mm-hmm. He didn't understand a lot of the doctrine involved around the, around the whole thing. And I don't think a lot of people did either. But you do have countries. England was one of the best educated countries of the faith. You know, they went nuts. And part of it was the anti-clericalism, the clergy being corrupt in a lot of places. Part of it was new, new trends and thinking. Uh, it was all kinds of things that were involved in the Reformation. That, um, and, he, and I was just reading a history of the Council of Trent. And boy, we're lucky we had a reform council. <laughs> the history of that council, of course, I was reading a history by someone who was a little more liberal. But still, I mean, it took three sessions the emperor had his project, which was to reconcile with the Lutherans. So he wanted vernacular liturgy, married clergy, and communion under both species. The French king didn't want the emperor to be reconciled with the Lutherans because he wanted them to be at war so he could have more power. So he was against all that stuff. The Roman Curia, they were interested. They didn't want people to touch them. And a, the, the odd thing is that through the whole mess, which lasted 35 years, I mean, they produced some really good documents. But the biggest sticking point of all, the thing the council broke up over almost twice, was the residency requirement for bishops in their diocese. (laughs) Because the Pope didn't want to be constricted, that he couldn't change the bishops and use them as he wanted. But the people recognized that if there was no residency of the bishops, there wouldn't be a Reformation. So they had all this struggle, and they couldn't figure out how to express it. And it was just really interesting. And in the end, this author's opinion, I don't think, I don't know if he's quite correct or not, was that though the documents were produced, you know, the actual implementation of the reform was something, and about the doctrine, people weren't too, because the Protestants really didn't come. So they were pretty clear about the doctrine. It was the discipline part that they had a lot of problems with. And it was only people like Charles Borromeo who had actually been a non-resident bishop, who took, you know, because they debated about it so much, even though they didn't want to require it, they realized it was an important issue. So a lot of the bishops actually began to take up residence in their sees, take seriously their functions as bishops, found seminaries, try to train their clergy, try to help the poor, and try to teach doctrine. And then, they, of course, they spawned a few catechisms. People like the religious orders of the Capuchins and the Jesuits aided in this. And uh, so that's how the reform occurred. But, um, yeah, the Protestant Reformation is a very complicated thing. And um, I, uh, I, the reason they're so deaf on the idea of works, though, is because Luther, I, Adolf von Harnack, who was a Lutheran historian, said at the turn of the 20th century that Luther's real problem was over physical things being able to communicate grace. And they, they really want to have a spiritual church uh, where they, they really think, and it's, it's an old heresy, it's the Gnostic heresy, that you, there will be a further church than the one that was represented in flesh and sacraments and hierarchies 
that will supersede that church and will bring us the pure spirit without having to have any physical mediation at all between God and man. So Luther, now remember, was, didn't feel called upon to be logical. So he kept a lot of physical things. He liked music, loved music, so he kept music, church music. Um, even the Virgin Mary, you know, he had a great devotion to the Virgin Mary. Um, all kinds of things like that. But the real Protestant denomination, in its final conclusion, is one where there's no physical mediation between the individual and the spirit. And that would be the Quakers and the Friends. Yeah. Uh, I'd just like to close with uh, a couple questions about religious life. Um, I remember you gave us a retreat a couple years ago, and you, I remember you said something. When you were younger, you thought you had it all figured out about religious life. And now you talk about the mystery of it and how people persevere. Could you talk about some of the errors you've seen that and, and and what are keys to persevering in the vocation? Okay, uh yeah, I I uh when I was young I thought I had all the answers and I think a lot of young people are that way. The older I get, especially in community life, you know, there's so many different personalities and so many strengths and weaknesses of the people involved that I I don't know, I still step my feet in minefields every day when I go home where I've hurt someone or I haven't said the thing the right way or <clears throat> something like that. I get corrected. Um, I think a, a big key to this is you have to keep your mind focused on why you're here, which can only be for Christ. And that leads you to a supernatural point of view where you see all things are passing even though it's important what you, how you give yourself to what's passing, you have to be someone detached from the outcome. Also, when you're corrected by either the superior brothers or you, again, set foot in a minefield or something, sometimes that's the situation. Sometimes it's the other person's problem. But there's a reason God allows that to happen to you, and it's usually for your own humility. So you realize that you don't know all the answers and you, you know, you have to step back. Also, tolerance is extremely important. Everybody has their point of view. And even though I think some people's points of view are nuts, it's important to realize it's their point of view and to respect it as their, I don't agree with it necessarily, but respect it as their point of view. And then I believe that the key to survival in any life, it's marriage, single life, but especially in the religious life, is a sense of humor about it all. The comic, you know, original sin produces either tragedy or comedy. In Greek drama, they were two masks that had the same face. And you could look at the thing and see all the tragedies of the difficulties of our personalities. Or you can see the fact that this is just more of the same stuff and we're, you know, just really... What fools these mortals be? Not to take ourselves too seriously. Not to take. I think that's what detachment gives you. Uh, C.S. Lewis once said, and it's true, that Satan has no sense of humor because he, he all he is is an egotist. He can't get beyond himself and see that he can be weak just like everybody else. And not taking yourself too seriously is extremely important. And I've also found that whenever I'm terribly unhappy and I'm being monstrous to others, it's because I'm not saying my prayers. You gotta, you gotta be uh, as careful as possible 
about not only the public prayer life, but at least having some time every day that you personally spend with God as you're loving you personally. How do you tell people to get that, to get that loving relationship with God? What, how do you, you know, teach people that? There's no secret to it. Father Dubay was very good in the, when he expressed the Carmelite mystics by saying the first key is, of course, what you do in your everyday life with others. You've got to be careful about the, your, your, your jobs, your duties, and what you're supposed to do. In religious life, we're always laughing because the novices come in and think they're in the seventh stage in the chapel. But they come out, they won't do the dishes, they won't do this, you know. uh, uh, It's incredible stuff, you know. At least when I entered, I'm glad to say I don't think people are like this today. But you think, I have to live with these people the rest of my life? These are, what what awful stuff, you know. One one guy, I remember, he wasn't in a religious order, but he was in a seminary. He never persevered. But he was a really he was a really good person, and he would have been a good priest. But he had absolutely no discipline about his life at all. And he used to say, "I'm going to fight the battle to reinstitute the Catholic religion." But he couldn't get up till nine thirty in the morning. And I say, "Kid, by the time you roll out of the rack, the war's going to be over." You know, I mean, people don't connect getting up early in the morning being sleepy, doing your chores that you're told to do. They don't connect any of that with the whole mess. Well, there's nothing particularly glamorous about cleaning toilets. But, I mean, if we don't do it, we'll all die of hydrophobia. So doing what the duties of your state require, that's the same in married life. You've got to cook meals. You've got to clean the house. You've got to do all that stuff. That's where the thing begins, plus the fact that you do have to spend some time with the Lord. And uh, the, the time when I really get worried, and I'm glad to say in my own particular community at the moment, this is not a problem, but when I really get worried is when religious don't attend the office, for instance. They stop going to the office except on very rare occasions. Um, they don't take seriously the fact that they need to do spiritual reading, um, any of that. You know, you know. And do you pray with the scriptures? Is that how you like to pray or...? Actually, um, I don't have a method. Dominicans are very much against methods. Everybody does this what helps them. So it depends on what I, you know, sometimes I use the saints, sometimes I use Magnificat, sometimes I use nature, sometimes I use, I mean, it depends on what I feel like that day. But remember, I'm older. <clears throat> In the beginning, methods can be very helpful to people. But as you go get older, you, you get beyond, somewhat beyond word encounter. And you have to, uh, but you do have to realize how God loves you personally. Because he has a plan for everyone that's different. One last question. Are there particular, I know you've given so many retreats, you've met so many religious and different experiences. Are there particular persons that stand out that help to inspire you and uh, even with perseverance you think of that person in different struggles yes there have been a number of people i've known both in the married life and in the religious life and in the single life that encourage me to go on of course religious life is different because you're living life with them but when you see someone who's happy and adjusted and obviously is in love with the Lord, even though they may suffer at the hands of the community sometimes. 
because we all live with misunderstanding. Uh, people that don't get misunderstood, when the going gets tough, they, they can't take it because they've never been tested. The misunderstanding is a testing for us. But those people, and, and they're not perfect people by any stretch of the imagination, but they demonstrate to me that it's what it's really all about. And I've had sisters, priests, and brothers that have been just absolutely, they were, they were obviously holy and committed religious. Tell us about one. Well, um, it's like, uh, for one thing, I always talk about the lay brother in Rome that I knew who answered the door at the age of 85. And he was a, what they used to call the Italian peasants. He was rather, he could read and write barely, but that was it. And he had run away from home at the age of 12 to become a Dominican. And when he went to the priory, the priest called him over and said, what do you want anyway? And he says, I want to be a friar. <clears throat> so the priest said, open your mouth. So he opened his mouth and said, no, you're too young. You sell your milk teeth. Come back later. So he went back home and his dad was fighting in war. He was Italian from the mountains outside of Naples. His dad had been fighting in World War I and came back and was horrified that his mother had let him go to this monastery when he was 12 or 13. <clears throat> so he apprenticed him as a plaster, a moratory, they call him in Italy. And the, he, didn't, he kept saying, I don't want to be here, I don't want to be here, I want to be in the monastery. So one day he fell off a scaffolding and hit his head and passed out. And of course his mother went nuts and started to pray to the Virgin and all this stuff. Well, when he revived and there was nothing wrong with it, she took this as a sign that he belonged in the monastery. So she convinced his dad to let him go. So they let him go up there. Well, anyway, he was with two or three priests. He, they, he wasn't educated to do anything, so they gave him menial tasks. And he said they used to have mental prayer every day in the church. So they'd sit up in the choir. He'd sit out in the church. And he had no idea what mental prayer was about, but all they do is look up at the ceiling, so he figured there must be something interesting up on the ceiling. You know, his feet wouldn't reach the, the, the ground yet. Well, they decided he should be a brother. Because in those days, you didn't enter to be a priest or brother. They decided for you. And he told me that the day he made profession, he cried. Because he knew that when he was a novice, people would talk to him about God. But after that, all he did was manual labor, and nobody had ever talked to him about God again. So he became a cook, and he used to carry the food for 50 people by hand before they had markets and cook on a wood stove for everybody every day. And then when he retired, he answered the door. But he was very manly, but very funny. He used to set up firecrackers in the house and all that stuff to see what would happen. And he also could go out in the fish pond and put put bread in his hand or whatever, and the fish would come and eat out of his hands. He had a marvelous uh, rapport with animals. Mm -hmm. But uh, because he was the oldest in the community, often the priests would come and dump on him. They'd yell at him for stuff, and uh, he never answered them back. So I used to sit there and listen to this. And One day I said, why don't you ever answer them back? He says, well, you know, they're not really mad at me. They're mad at somebody else. But they're afraid of the person they're mad at. He said, nobody's afraid of me because I'm 85 years old and I'm the most, oh, I do the dirtiest job in the place. <laughs> he says, I'm the lowest person in the community. So that's why they come and yell at me. But he says, I, I don't get involved because it's not about me. It's about somebody else. 
And then the only time I ever heard him answer anybody back was when it was to defend someone else that he thought was being unjustly attacked. Mm. But for himself, he said, I don't, I don't get involved in it because I'm not, it's not a, he says, we have a saying in Italian, when you can't kick the mass, you kick his dog. Mm. So he said, I'm the dog of the community. They come and kick me, but I, I don't get involved because they're, they're not really upset with me. And he was where in Italy? He was the porter at our university in, in Rome. Oh, wow. Angelicum, yeah. But, you know, he had been a brother in Bari in the 30s, during the Depression, the 20s and 30s, and there was a very famous prime minister of Italy who was assassinated by the Red Guard. His name was Aldo Moro, who was a Christian Democrat. Paul VI, who was like the hope for Pope Paul VI, who very much became despairing when he was assassinated. Well, Aldo Moro had grown up in this parish, and they were starving when they were children. Mm-hmm. And so Francesco used to let him steal food in the priory kitchen, but he couldn't let him steal too much because he'd get in trouble. So he'd pretend to do something while they were stealing, and they'd go up and throw him out, right? Well, Aldemora came to make a visit to the Angelicum, and of course all the important people were there when he was prime minister and all his business. And he left all the bishops and cardinals and the important Dominicans and he went to the porter's office and he knelt down and kissed Fra Nocenzo's hands mm. because he'd helped him to survive during the Depression. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us. That was great. Sure.